Welcome back to The Lover's Hole. We're reading through the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. As usual, you're with Mike. And with Ian. And we're on part five of the Ionian mission. Ian, where did we leave off last time and what's coming up for us? Well, Mike, we were starting to feel a little bit festive last week. Um, We learned about the intelligence situation in the Mediterranean. John Thornton's complex Mediterranean command and all the Byzantine complexity of the intelligence networks going on there. We had this Maltese clerk poisoned or maybe committed suicide before he could be court-martialed. We had Jack very delicately trying to remind his friend Bennett about the the dangers of dallying ashore with a with a flame-haired wench. Um, we didn't get a partridge in a pear tree, but we did get an unexpected shower of quails aboard the Worcester. And of course, also aboard the Worcester, we had Lieutenant Summers. There was upset in the wardroom and on deck as Lieutenant Summers finally fell out with Jack altogether. Good news, though. On the horizon, we met the surprise joining the squadron, which was a great joy to see. We'd like to shout out to a number of people this week, especially our follower Charles on Twitter, who responded to our question about Admiral Thornton uh, a couple of weeks ago. Who is Admiral Thornton? Actually, Thornton's a partial recreation of Trafalgar hero Cuthbert Collingwood. If you let Collingwood stay alive and in command of the Mediterranean command uh, for a couple more years, he would have made it right into this timeline, I think. Lots of the features of Admiral Thornton um, have parallels with the career of um, local northeastern hero Cuthbert Collingwood. So, Mike, that was last week. To get even more festive this week, I would say that this is a, our December holiday musical gift to you, our listeners. We hope that you're going to enjoy it. We're going to get deeply into music this week because in the story with Stephen still away, Jack is playing Old Bach, and we'll have a little bit of a talk about who Old Bach really was. We've got a great interview with our friend, Professor of Music, David Curtin, about one of these Bach pieces that we're going to get into and about David's journey through the Aubrey Maturin canon. And we're going to dig into Bach. We're going to dig into Busoni and maybe also some Beethoven. And who knows, there could also be a new mission on the horizon for Jack and the ship's company of the Worcester. Well, holiday greetings to everybody. We should be, I believe, when this airs, the last week in December of 2020. So maybe a new mission on the horizon for Jack, uh, a new year on the horizon for us. And I don't know about all of you out there listening, but I think a lot of us in 2020 are ready for a new year on the horizon. I think we are. I think we are, Mike. (laughs) Jack, I think, was feeling perhaps a little bit like we are now and and maybe even more so you know he's alone there on the worcester he's uh he's playing you know still even without stephen he's still playing alone not as often but occasionally when he's on in the mood and he's working on this partita but he's finding that the more he plays it the deeper he gets into it kind of the stranger it gets uh it's to the point and we're going to talk to David about some of this. There was something dangerous about what followed, something not unlike the edge of madness or at least of a nightmare. O'Brien writes, kind of looking into Jack's mind as he goes into the music. And he kind of concludes saying he felt that if he were to go on playing it with all his heart, it might lead him to very strange regions indeed 
Ian, what's this piece of music we're talking about? Oh, Mike, this is a favorite. This is the Chacon from Bach's Partita for Solo Violin in D minor. And we've been, I think, justly critical of some of O'Brien's musical references. It's rather, rather passing, rather incomplete, rather fanciful music references. But this is absolutely a classic moment. This is a great moment of character for Jack. This piece is absolutely pro- properly referred to, and it really is a big monument in the violin, the solo violin repertoire. So what better moment to go really off the deep end? What better moment to really dig into the connections of music and the Aubrey Maturin canon? What better moment to think about how O'Brien really uses music to reflect on character than this? So we got the chance to talk to friend of the podcast, David Curtin. Here he comes. We hope you enjoy the interview. So we're really excited to welcome to the podcast our guest, David Curtin. David's a professor of music at Lockhaven University in Pennsylvania. Um, David's originally specially qualified in piano performance, and we'll hear some more about that. Um, but these days, at Lockhaven specializes in teaching music appreciation, especially to, I guess you'd say, non-classically trained students. Is that is that a fair description, David? Yeah, so... Uh, um... My my role at Lockhaven is mostly teaching introduction to music, sort of music appreciation courses to non-music majors because our own music department is pretty small and we generally don't have that many music majors. But I really enjoy actually teaching music appreciation. And I think in a way it's more important that we develop an audience uh, and at least open the door, introduce people to this to this music. Uh, rather than that we turn out more exquisitely trained classical performers, of which there is currently a glut in the musical world. Indeed. So, David, I think we caught up with you because you post, especially about musical stuff, on the Aubrey Matcher and Appreciation Society on Facebook. So let's start with the O'Brien angle. Tell us how you first got into the books. Sure. Well, uh, I think I first got into the books from two different avenues. The first was that um, my father passed away in 2013, and he had been actually in the American Navy during the Korean War. And he uh, loved talking about the Navy and he loved the sea and he loved uh, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. And he had two of O'Brien's books in his bookcase when we went to sort of clear out his stuff. He had, I believe, Master and Commander and he had the Wine Dark Sea. And I think that's maybe what got me started because I hadn't heard of Patrick O'Brien before that. And then also that I had a colleague down the hall from me, not a music professor, but a, a different subject. And she was also very interested into the, the canon. And she thought that I might appreciate it because of the musical angle. Uh, so she lent me her DVD of the movie, which I enjoyed. And then she gave me an entire box full of all of her volumes of the canon. So I just started reading them. I read them all the way through, uh, one after another. And then when it was done, I started and read them through again, uh, which, and that whole process maybe <laughs> took me about a year yeah. and a half. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, actually I, I thought at one point of writing a short story about a guy who starts reading the O'Brien books and his whole life falls apart because he can't tear himself away. You know, the bills go unpaid. His wife leaves him uh, anyway. Uh, so, so anyway, there, there was a period of some years there where I hadn't read them. And then when this quarantine business started in March, I decided to start reading them again. So I'm now I'm on my third circumnavigation of the canon. 
Oh, well, that's great. And and I should have said at the very beginning, welcome to the show as well. It's great to have you with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, thank you. And it's clearly important to the story that Jack and Stephen have these musical connections and the, the music plays an important part of the story. How, how important was that in bringing you into the story and making a connection? Well, uh, you know, as as I said, since uh, since my friend thought that I might enjoy the music, that's in a way what kind of drew me in in the first place. I mean, there's so many wonderful aspects about the novel. I mean, it, one hardly knows where to begin. But I think that right yeah. right from the beginning, well, first of all, I just love the way that O'Brien talks about and writes about music because it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, to write effectively about music to people, especially who might not have any technical knowledge of what a dominant chord is, or, you know. So, you know, it, one has to sort of walk this fine line between being overly technical, but on the other hand, being just sort of vacuous and emotional. And I think he does that maybe better than anyone else I can think of. But then there's also the the way that, for example, right at the beginning, the thing that brings Jack and Steven together in that octagonal room is music. They wouldn't be there. It's sort of like, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't a gunner. Yeah. If I weren't a music lover, I wouldn't be here. So they both happen to, to meet in that room because they love music, but they respond to music very differently because their personalities are so different. And this is what leads to them almost, you know, maybe killing each other because, of course, Jack is, is enjoying it so much and feels the urge to move and tap his foot and Stephen just wants to take it in and not have this distraction. And so he gives Jack that jab in the ribs with his elbow, um, which almost leads to their undoing, but uh, fortunately does not. So if we're going to talk about how people with different musical backgrounds find their ways into getting to know each other, what was your story of getting into music? Because I think I remember you telling me it wasn't the conventional story of the way people get into studying piano. Uh, that's correct. So I had a very unconventional background, I think, for someone in my position anyway. So my first instrument was saxophone, which I picked up in fourth grade. You know, in fourth grade is when, at least in America, you generally either choose to play an instrument or sing in the choir or, or not. And I was attracted to the saxophone, I think, because the flute and the clarinet was for girls, of course. Um, and the saxophone had lots of, it was shiny and had lots of levers and buttons and knobs and things on it. So, so I played saxophone and, uh, I was, I was, I guess, pretty good. And my father, who was a classical music lover, uh, did not play an instrument himself, but was very much into his record collection and making tapes and uh, categorizing his library and all that. So I grew up hearing it a bit of it. And uh, he thought, well, this boy could be a musician, so we should buy him a piano because all musicians need to learn piano. So we bought an upright piano when I was about 11 or 12 years old. And I started taking lessons from a, a local piano teacher. And now this part of the story is very typical. I was not interested in piano. I didn't practice very much. And I, I dropped after about a year, year and a half. But the piano still sat in our house, so I would just kind of mess around. I would like improvise primitive blues and jazz and things, but I didn't really try and develop myself overly much uh, until I went to college. And when I went to college, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I thought I might be maybe music education on saxophone. I thought I might do English. But um, for the first two years of college, I was an undeclared major, and that left me some time, some spare time while I was just doing what we call gen eds. 
And so one of the things I thought was, well, I've got this time. Maybe I could uh, take piano as an elective. Uh, so I signed up for piano lessons. And this is really what changed my life because I started working with uh, my teacher there. And this is at SUNY Fredonia, by the way, State University of New York at Fredonia. And um, my teacher there, who unfortunately just passed away about a year and a half ago, uh, Robert Jordan, great, great pianist and wonderful teacher to whom I owe really everything that came afterwards, including meeting my wife, who was also a pianist. I would not have met her if I hadn't gone into, into piano. So um, he started teaching me and he really had a gift for teaching someone who doesn't have a lot of background. First of all, he had an infinite patience. Uh, but he also had a knack for explaining things um, in, in such a way and encouraging and, and sort of giving you the room to grow. And I found myself inspired by this and I started practicing more and more and I declared music as my major. I actually declared music and English at the same time. So I went from having no major to having two majors <laughs> and, you know, I started practicing four or five hours a day. And I got good enough so that I could audition for graduate school, went to uh, grad school at the University of Louisville, studied with the great pianist Lee Luvisi, uh, who is himself a student of uh, Rudolf Serkin, and, and wow. then uh, did my doctorate at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I studied with the great James Tocco, uh, who was himself a student of Claudio Arau. And this is something that we pianists, we musicians always do. We name our teachers and our teachers' teachers. And yeah, <laughs> it's it a is. Degree, yeah. Uh, and in fact, one of my, well, I, can, I, I won't bore you with, but I think my great, you know, we, we think of great grandparents and my great, my musical great, 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 great grandfather would have been Beethoven actually. Um, so I can trace my lineage as many pianists can. This is not that unusual because for example, James Toko, his teacher was Claudio Arau. Arau's teacher was a, a guy named Martin Krauss, uh, who had studied with Liszt. Liszt studied with Czerny. Czerny studied with Beethoven. Beethoven studied with Haydn, you know, so yeah. <laughs> I'm name dropping. I apologize. That's a long old one. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we're going to be dropping your name for the next umpteen episodes, so, so deal with it. David, I, I love um, the influence of your dad, the influence of these you know, mentors in your life, your work to kind of bring more people to an appreciation of classical music. And it seems like in the canon, pretty much everyone has this background in, in music and, and appreciates it and, and you know, is engaged in it. Is that recognizable in the world today? How do we differ or how are we similar to back in the, the 19th century? Well, it's very interesting because uh, well, I'll start from where we are today and then I'll probably go back a few hundred years and move forward. But of course, today we are just saturated with music. Music is everywhere. You can't go into a department store. You can't be on hold without there being music there. And of course, we have the easiest access to music. It was just unthinkable to think that you could take a little machine and, and just search for absolutely anything by anyone, and it instantly appears. Um, so obviously, we are in a culture that loves music. But back in Stephen and Jack's time, of course, they loved music too, and maybe even more than we do, because they had to expend some effort in order to, to listen to music. Of course, in those days, the only way you would be hearing any music is if you were at a live concert or if you were creating it yourself at home. And so one of the basic requirements of being an educated person 
was being able to read music fluently and also being able to sing well, to play an instrument, also to dance well. So you see references in the canon, for example, to Jack's daughters, their dancing master, and whoever's teaching them deportment and all of this, which is an indication that it was not just sort of the snooty upper classes who desired these things. It was the middle classes. And this probably goes back to really to the Renaissance when we have the emergence of what we might today call the middle class. And it's, it's a bit of a misnomer because the middle class is just a very thin sort of segment of society back in those days. But it's a segment of people who have to work for a living. They don't have royal titles, but they are educated. They aren't just, you know, peasants or whatever. They're educated. They are literate. And they aspire to the finer things in life. And so they are sending their children, let's say, to universities if they can afford it. They have more spare time, let's say, beginning in the 17th century. Uh, they have more, let's say, disposable income, spare time as, as, let's say, professionals, urban professionals. And they have the money, let's say, to spend on things like concerts. The era of the public concert really begins in the 17th century. There is no such thing as a public concert as we know it until the 17th century. So something like opera, for example, the references to opera in the canon, people don't realize that opera in those days was the equivalent of the movies today. Today, it's, you know, opera is a sort of a, it's thought of as an exclusive kind of thing that only a relatively narrow segment of society is drawn to. But in those days, it was like the movies. I mean, today you could easily meet people who had never been to the opera, but you're unlikely to meet anyone who's never been to the movies. And so this is one of the things that I try and stress to my students, actually. I, I try to teach them kind of about history and culture through music, not just teach about music. So again, moving back to the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, it was just considered essential that people, part of a, a, an education was music, and especially for women. So we have this interesting and, and from our perspective, kind of unfortunate dichotomy in that only men for the most part, could be professional musicians, but women were expected to be excellent amateur musicians. And part of the reason for this, it made them more attractive as potential brides and wives, is that they could provide entertainment and also train the children. So for example, if you walk into a 19th century house, middle class and above, to walk into a 19th century house and there not being a piano there would be unthinkable. It would be like walking into a house today and there's no TV set. And the piano was not just there to hold up nice picture frames or collect dust. Somebody in that house, probably the, the matron of the house or the daughters of the house, certainly, would be able to play and play well because that was part of their role as the home entertainment system, if you will, uh, of the day. I, I want to pick up on a couple of composers in a couple of episodes in particular, if sure. that's okay. And David, maybe it's okay if I go straight to a quote because I think there's a reference in the canon that we might be able to get a lot out of. And I want to go to a reference that comes up in the Ionian mission. This is talking about Jack playing a piece on the violin. He had really been in a mood for music, it says, and in any case, the partita that he was now engaged upon, one of the manuscript works he had bought in London, grew more and more strange the deeper he went into it. The opening movements were full of technical difficulties and he doubted he would do them justice, but it was the great chacon which followed that really disturbed him. On the face of it, the statements made in the beginning were clear enough, could be followed with full acceptation, although not particularly hard to play. 
And then at some point, after a curiously insistent repetition of the second theme, the rhythm changed and with it, the whole logic of the discourse. And it says that Jack recognized the whole sonata and particularly the Chaconne was a most impressive composition. And that if he were to go on playing it with all his heart, it might lead him to very strange regions indeed. David, it's not named, <laughs> and there's certainly room for some doubt, but I think we've got a good hunch as to what piece it is that O'Brien has in mind. Right, so this is the famous Chacon from the Partita for Unaccompanied Solo Violin, number two. And this is one of the, if not the, best known among violinists uh, solo work, uh, and it's, it's just a, a monumental work. It's interesting that O'Brien, in that description of Jack's thoughts, it, you can see, you know, it's leading him to strange regions. Um, yeah. So, and what it what it reminds me of is this quote, actually, by Brahms. Now, Brahms, of course, a great admirer of Bach, uh, one of several composers to take up that chaconn and use it as a basis for a piece of his own. Now, first of all, a chaconn, what it is, is it's uh, essentially a series of variations on a bass line and or a chord progression. Brahms composed a version of that Chaconne for piano left hand alone. Um, and this is a quote, uh, I, I think this is a letter actually to Clara Schumann who was a very close, dear friend of Brahms. And here's what Brahms had to say about the Chacon. He says, the Chacon is one of the most wonderful, incomprehensible pieces of music. On a single staff for a small instrument, the man writes a whole world of the deepest thoughts and the most powerful feelings. If I were to imagine how I might have made or have conceived of the piece, I know for certain that the overwhelming excitement and awe would have driven me mad. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, wow. it's it's wow. Uh, it's a really a, a very deep and profound. In fact, my son is a violinist, and um, I was in his his uh, his professor, his teacher's office uh, not long ago, and he has framed on the wall the entire Chacon in box. It's a it, you know someone made a print of it uh, in Bach's own hand, and, and it's a big poster, but you can just fit the entire thing. Uh, and it's just a work of art, just the, the score of it, uh, much less the actual music. But yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a piece that, uh, again, words can't do justice unless maybe you're uh, O'Brien. Uh, but I definitely urge our listeners, uh, and maybe I guess you can put a, a link up uh, to a recording or point us in a direction. Well, let's take a listen and uh, we'll put a link out on the uh, social media and on the Patreon page so you can all go find it for yourselves. Here comes a little piece of the Bach Chacon in D minor.
Isn't that fantastic? So, David, uh, this has become a big landmark piece of repertoire for violinists. Tell us about how this piece comes to be played by piano players as well. Well, usually if we're hearing it on the piano, it is being performed in the transcription by the great Italian composer, pianist Ferruccio Busoni who made a number of different transcriptions of Bach works, uh, mostly organ works, but also this Chacon, he uh, created a version of it for solo piano. And in doing so, it, uh, and this is a work that uh, is sort of, a, I guess we might call a war horse that a lot of pianists uh, perform. Yeah. Uh, and, it's, and I certainly recommend it. Maybe we can put a link to that as well. Um, sure. It's, it kind of, it does in a way the opposite of what, what Brahms was talking about. Of course, Brahms made a version for, for left hand alone. I think maybe because he wanted to challenge himself because of the fact that Bach created this original masterpiece on a small instrument that, that only for a single staff rather than the two staves of piano music, one for the right, one for the left hand. And I think Brahms wanted to remain within uh, that challenging limitation of one hand and fewer notes, whereas Busoni takes it in, in kind of the opposite direction and it becomes this very flashy knuckle buster of a piece. But that in itself is kind of an interesting compositional challenge as well. But it does, it a little bit changes the character of it going from a very serious, uh, certainly technically daunting work, but very emotionally profound and serious to something that is considered maybe more of a flashy warhorse, uh, audience pleasing type of piece. But then of course, those are just my own personal observations. Right. And the Brahms symphony that you mentioned, tell, tell us about that, because oh, maybe that's something interesting for uh, listeners. Sure. So out. we were talking before the we started recording about other connections. And there's one other uh, Chacon, which I want to recommend to all of our listeners. And that is the last movement of Brahms' Fourth Symphony, uh, which is actually based on a theme that Brahms borrowed from Bach. So what Bach, uh, Brahms did is he took the, uh, the bass line from one of uh, from a movement of one of Bach's earlier cantatas, and then used it as actually the melody for a chacon uh, or a passacaglia. By the way, passacaglia and chacon essentially mean the same thing: variations on a bass line, chord progression. So what Brahms did, first of all, was kind of controversial at the time because the chacon was considered a, a kind of an archaic, old-fashioned baroque genre, which in the 19th century was just very, uh, very strange and unfashionable. But he also created this very unusual chord progression where the chords do not function in the normal way that you would expect them to. 
and if not to get into the weeds too much on music theory, but you know, a chord progression is a logical sequence of chords, which means that the chords have certain logical uses and perhaps less logical uses. And Brahms's chord progression in that last movement is very unconventional. It's utterly convincing, but I think it's, you know, of course, I'm not alone in thinking this. It's uh, among the greatest things that Brahms ever composed. Certainly one of my Desert Island pieces. The entire Fourth Symphony is wonderful, but that last movement is really just something else. So maybe there are one or two other musical references in the canon that we can pick up on. We're in the Ionian mission right now, as we think about this reference to the Chacon. Coming up soon is Treason's Harbour. And without giving too much away in terms of spoilers, I think Stephen's going to find himself in close company for a while with Mr. Secretary Ray. And they have a shared musical passion. Oh, yes. So there's this, uh, been a couple books ago, but (laughs) maybe about a month ago uh, that I was reading Treason's Harbor. And there's this wonderful episode where Stephen and Andrew Ray uh, happen to meet at a, I think it's maybe Vespers or something. And there is Gregorian chant being sung. And Stephen looks over at Ray and Ray is deeply moved in tears. And they have a little conversation afterwards. And they have this shared passion for Gregorian chant. And they particularly mention how they both enjoy the Gregorian chant without all of those melismas. And this is one of these words that, uh, um, well, what is a melisma? It's one of the terms actually I teach to my uh, to my students, a melisma. So we have basically two categories of singing, maybe a spectrum. But on one end, we have what we might call syllabic singing, where for each syllable of the text that is being sung, there is one note. So we can think of something like the Star Spangled Banner is mostly syllabic. We have, oh, say, can we see, you know, by the dawn's early light, each one of the notes has its own syllable of text. But then if, if you can imagine Mariah Carey or, or Whitney, Houston <laughs> Whitney Houston singing the national yeah, exactly. anthem, what would they do? They would, they would embellish each syllable and add lots of notes. And that's what melisma is. And, and in Gregorian chant, there are chants that are more melismatic, uh, which would usually, I think, be reserved for maybe more important church holidays and more festive days would have these more melismatic chants. But it's an interesting connection between these two characters, which, of course, fate has much in store. Spoiler alert, uh, Ray is not long for this world, thanks to Stephen. But they have this connection in music, and otherwise, of course, they are working to undermine each other. Uh, so it's, it's just, one, again, one of these fascinating, wonderful little things that is musically related within the canon. So, David, in the podcast before, a couple of times, we've talked about how some of O'Brien's musical references are a little bit fanciful or a bit artificial. Has that struck you? Any examples we should call our attention to straight away? Well, uh, I do think it's interesting that, so for example, once you start in the canon, if you're musically inclined, you might go looking for that particular, whatever it was, Locatelli Quartet, which turns out not to exist. (laughs) And there are a few of these little... uh, breadcrumbs, I guess, or whatever you might call them, this uh, Easter eggs, which I I guess O'Brien could have chosen works that really do exist, but I think he considered it maybe not that important. And and after all, who knows, a lot of these composers had works that were lost. You know, in the case of Bach, probably two thirds of his output is lost. And so it could very well be that there is some some quartet by Locatelli or others that that, uh, was heard back then and is no longer heard today. But 
I think it is it is interesting also though that when a work plays a more significant role, he chooses something that really yeah. does exist, like the Chacon or like Marriage of Figaro. So he doesn't steer us too far off. <laughs> David, you've mentioned um music and the role that music plays in the canon. And and you've also said that you love so many other things about the canon. So I'm just wondering for you. Any other connections to other works of literature or culture where either music plays a prominent part or something else that you love in the canon resonates? Sure. Well, that I'll just do a, a brief survey of things that I love about the canon. First of all, just uh, the escapism, traveling all over the world. There's nothing like a seafaring novel for that. And, and of course, encountering all these different cultures and uh, the friendship, obviously, between uh, the two of them, despite their very different personalities. And actually, you know what? Of course, when any of us read the canon and we start looking around for and we get through it and we want to find other things like that, of course, invariably, we often come up frustrated. But um, when I started looking around at other things, again, for my dad's library, my dad was a big World War II buff. And I started reading the Herman Woke series, The uh, Winds of War and War of Remembrance. And there is a bit of a musical connection there because Woke, who just died, I think maybe two years ago at age 103, when wow. he was yeah, when he was 99 or 100, I think, he wrote a little memoir called Sailor and Fiddler because he himself was a musician and was in the Navy, actually, in the American Navy during World War II and uh, was a musician. But there's not a lot of references to music in Winds of War or War and Remembrance, but I highly recommend that anyone who loves the canon will love those books. Uh, very different in style from O'Brien, um, and obviously a completely different era. But once you get into them, they're almost as addictive, I think, as the Patrick O'Brien novels, and in many places, just as profound. I think that Woke is really sort of like the Tolstoy of World War II. I'm sure that uh, many of your listeners already know about this, but I thought I'd throw that one out there. Oh, and it's a it's a great uh, reference to pick up as well. They're fantastic books, and then, I know I, I've got them, but I haven't read them for like a decade. They're fantastic, really, really good to pick up on. You mentioned earlier on, David, that the time period of the novels is in prime Beethoven years. What do you think Stephen and Jack would have made of any of Beethoven's works if they'd had the chance to go, as they said that they might, to Vienna in eighteen o two? Yeah, one wishes they could have. Of course, they would have probably gotten stuck there and would have <laughs> had a hard time finding their way back out to the sea, Vienna being famously landlocked. Now, of course, there's this connection between Beethoven and Napoleon. Beethoven was, like so many people in that time, was initially idolized Napoleon and saw him as the savior of Europe, the man who was going to bring the values of the French Revolution, equality, fraternity, uh, all of that to the rest of Europe. <laughs> uh, and of course, this ended up being just a sham. And the thing that, it, that revealed it was when uh, Napoleon crowned himself emperor. And this is what turned Beethoven. Beethoven was, of course, famously in the process of composing a symphony, which he planned to dedicate to Napoleon. He was even going to call it the Bonaparte Symphony. But when the news reached him that, that uh, Napoleon had crowned himself, Beethoven saw this as an outrage and violently scribbled out the, the dedication, which we can still see in the, in the manuscript of the Third Symphony, which is today called the Eroica Symphony. Instead of calling it the Napoleon Symphony or the Bonaparte Symphony, he called it the Heroic Symphony to honor the memory of a great man. 
um, the man that, of course, he hadn't died yet, but the man, the great man was no more. And of course, this is symbolized in the symphony itself by the, the slow movement being a funeral march. Um, the, the heroic character that we hear in the first movement uh, is no more when we get to this funeral march. Uh, so anyway, relating it to Stephen and Jack, I think one isn't sure whether uh, they would have maybe been a little bit bewildered by Beethoven generally. Would they have considered it to be flash, let's say, uh, or would it have appealed to them, especially a character like Stephen, who is something, you know, has these revolutionary urges and was, you know, Beethoven was very much a man of his time. That is of the Enlightenment. Uh, he looked at the nobility. He had a curious relationship to the nobility because on the one hand, you know, having this this name Van Beethoven, of course, is a Dutch name. It's not the same as Von in German. But, of course, spelling was casual back then, and most people assumed that Beethoven was a member of the nobility, which he was not. But he didn't go out of his way to, to dispel this notion, actually. He didn't mind people thinking that he was of the nobility. Uh, it gave him a certain advantage. But then, on the other hand, he, was, he, was, he looked at the nobility, as, as people in the Enlightenment started to, as like, well, what makes you better than me? Just because you're a prince, you know, because your father was a prince. What I am, Beethoven would say, I am because of my talent, because of my genius. Uh, and if anything, I'm better than you. <laughs> and on the other hand, he was friends with many, many of the upper nobility and cultivated them. But he did not defer to them in the same way that, let's say, Haydn did. Haydn is of an earlier generation and worked as a servant in the court of the Esterhazy. He's part of the household, yeah. That's right. So we're starting to see the beginnings of this idea of, you might even say, inverted snobbery, you know, <laughs> playing up the, the in independence and value and power of the people who aren't necessarily born into privilege. David, I'm just loving all your insights into music and culture and how these things relate together. So if some of our listeners wanted to get a little bit more of this, now, do, do I remember that some of your lectures are posted to YouTube. Could we, can we drop in on those? Oh, sure. So because of the quarantine situation, a lot of people in my position are having to teach online. So the way that I do this, we have a sort of a web portal for my students uh, where they access materials for the course and they have their textbook, which is a lot of them these use the, the book online. But then I also post lectures to YouTube and you don't have to be in the class to, to see them. If you want to search on YouTube for, I believe it's Dr. Curtin Music 101. You'll see my lectures, which are again geared toward my class, but anyone can see them, they're public. If you like any of this, you can hear more of it there. And I start really from the beginning, from the basic elements of music through the various eras. And I try to work in as much like the historical background as I can, uh, historical and cultural background. So yeah, some of your listeners might enjoy some of that. Anything else going on in your musical life at the moment, David? Well, it, it turns out that my son is a violinist and he's about to give his uh, first degree recital this Sunday. Now, of course, by the time this appears, it, it might have been several Sundays ago, but probably the link might still be available by then. Yeah, so he's a, a violin major, violin performance major at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, he studies with Andres Cardenas, who's a wonderful artist. Again, going into the genealogy thing, Cardenas studied with Joseph Gingold, who was also the teacher of Joshua Bell. And uh, Gingold's teacher was the great Belgian violinist composer Yi Sai. 
And Brian is going to play a, a work by Yisai on this concert. He's also going to play some Grieg and some Mozart and I think a contemporary piece by Ludoslavsky. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, I think that's about it. It's, it's good about a, a, an hour's worth of music. Well, good luck to him. Not, no, not, not even good luck. Break a leg. <laughs> and uh, I, hope, I hope you enjoy the, the moment as a proud father as well. That sounds like a great Oh, I occasion. do very much. Thank you. Excellent. David, thank you so much. It's been great to talk about all these musical connections in the canon. It's been great to, to listen to your story as well and hear how this relates to you know your love of music and your love of the books. We've really, really enjoyed having you with us. We hope that we can invite you back one day and uh, and we hope that you've had fun too. Oh, it's been a joy. I, I love talking about the books. I obviously love talking about music, but I love talking about these novels and uh, it's been my pleasure and I, I hope I can come back sometime. That would be wonderful. Thanks again, David Curtin. It's been great to have you with us. Thank you, guys. That was our friend David Curtin. Wow, that was that was fabulous. I really enjoyed that. David was a great person to talk to and learn about the music and the canon from. Absolutely. And I love the fact that he's got this passion for passing on the understanding and the appreciation of music, um, which I think is a big part of you know, one of the things that the canon brings. I remember when Ava Sandor said one of the things about the O'Brien books is that it prompts you to learn things. And I think it's prompted all sorts of people um, reading the books to delve into the musical side of things. And th th there's so many treasures there to uncover. We'll certainly play out on our social media um, longer excerpts from the Bach Chacon. Um, we'll share out on our social media some some other nice Christmas classical music. There's the great Corelli Concerto Grosso, the Christmas Concerto, um, which is which is famous and which Jack and Stephen would have really loved. And we all know there are bits of Boccherini and other things as well that are favourites um, from the canon. So if you're listening at Christmas and you want to just check out our social media, go on facebook.com forward slash lovers hole or follow us on Twitter at at hole lovers and we'll put some christmas listening treats for you there yeah some of you may spot that that corelli piece was actually in the soundtrack for master and commander the film oh it was wasn't it good spot yeah, yeah. well done well Ian, i was gonna say one more shout out to our podbean listeners you know our listeners mk hey. solomon 35 came back to us where we were talking about old bach london bach the different box and pointed out that uh, C.P.E. Bach, who we had mentioned before, actually was referred to, we said that perhaps was London Bach, that he was called Berlin Bach and Hamburg yeah. Bach, and actually ended up kind of a little bit, well, I shouldn't say wasting away, but he wasn't as fully appreciated as he could have been in the court of Frederick the Great in Prussia. So uh, a lot of his time in Prussia, not the London Bach, but that the London Bach was J.C. Bach, Johann uh, Christian. Johann Christian, exactly right. Oh, it is Christian. It's just spelled differently than I usually say. So, J.C. Bach, Johann Christian. So Bach's youngest son. My bad. <laughs> I was going to say, for those of you musical history of fanatics, when, when C.P.E. Bach got to Prussia, uh, Frederick the Great, who he worked for there, was always inviting his dad, J.S. Bach, to come. And it was only when C.P.E. Bach set it up that they had a great meeting there. So maybe we can uh, tweet out or put up on social media a little bit of the story between what was called Old Bach, J.S. Bach, and Frederick the Great, Der Ulta Fritz, so Old Fred or Old Fritz. <laughs> 
So well spotted. Thank you, MK Solomon 35. You're absolutely right. Uh, my mistake. JC Bach, not CPE Bach. It's been great also to see all the reviews coming in. We go to places like Podbean, we go onto Apple, we go onto Spotify, and people are leaving nice comments about the podcast. Please keep that coming. We love to hear how you're enjoying the shows. We love to hear where you're up to in the canon, and we love to hear more about what you'd like to hear in future episodes. Absolutely. Well, as we rejoin Jack, he's still thinking about the music, and he's writing. He has a serial letter going to Sophie. He just, whenever he gets time, he adds to this letter. Uh, and O'Brien tells us during a pause in his evening letter, Jack thought of telling Sophie of a notion that had come to him, a figure that might make the nature of the Chacon more understandable. It was as though he were fox hunting, mounted on a powerful spirited horse, and as though on leaping a bank perfectly in hand, the animal changed foot. And with the change of foot came a change in its being so that it was no longer a horse he was sitting on, but a great rough beast, far more powerful, that was swarming along at great speed over an unknown countryside in pursuit of a quarry. And what quarry he could not tell, but it was no longer the simple fox. But it would be a difficult notion to express, he decided. And in any case, Sophie did not really care for music while she positively disliked horses. <laughs> It's a great moment, isn't it? That horses are right up there with pieces of music. Right. <laughs> in, in, as, as things that O'Brien chooses to use to highlight little bits of character. And it's an interesting moment as well to reflect back on the fact that this is a this is a passion and interest of Jack's that's different from what Sophie's uh, Sophie cares about. This is pretty ominous, I think, Mike, this imagery of suddenly losing control of the horse. And this changing of foot, that's a real thing, right? That really changes the way that it feels as you're, as you're on a horse as it's moving. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a metaphor somewhere else. And I, for the moment, I can't find where it is. I think it's coming in a book that we're yet to reach in the canon where O'Brien gives us this metaphor of Jack dreaming or imagining that he's on a horse that starts out as a proud stallion and shrinks along until he's riding a, a donkey or a mule with his feet dragging on the ground. I think it's in the next book along in the canon. I think it's Treason's Harbor. So we'll come to it eventually. Oh, very good. Well, and I hear so many people who are so excited to get to Treason's Harbor. He loves the idea of horses as metaphors for how people are in the world and, and how they see themselves. And clearly there's a bit of anxiety and a bit of foreshadowing there for Jack. The idea that the, the, the look or the career or the persona that he's riding might get out of control or might do him harm. Right. That leaves me worried, I think, for our Jack. Well, it did for me too. And this, you know, what's this dangerous quarry he's pursuing here? Because, you know, we keep kind of wondering, well, you know, there's going to be an Ionian mission. We assume, I wonder what that mission is and where it's going to take our dear Jack. Jack, I think, is thinking deeply about this this metaphor and this dream idea of the horse, but he's not going to major on horse uh, imagery in his letter back to Sophie. But he does know that Sophie loves plays. So Jack takes the time to tell her about the ship's play. And Mike, we, we've had it before. I think that ship's companies love to put on the performance of Hamlet, which is a very strange choice of a production, if you know anything about the characters of Hamlet and how it ends up. Right. Uh, but maybe the theme of madness <laughs> and the theme of personal reflection is just too appealing for O'Brien to resist or maybe too appealing for sailors to resist. Jack points out that the ship's company is aiming high. They've got the oratorio that they're already preparing, and they've got this idea for a production of Hamlet and smaller plays coming along each week. He ends his letter by talking about these short, 
dramatic pieces. He talks about a kind of farce that carries on from one week to the next. Very popular. Two old forecastle hands show a fat, stupid landsman the duties of a sailor and the customs of the navy, banging him with bladders every time he does wrong. And Jack is smiling as he remembers the laughter of 500 close-packed men as the fool beaten on both sides fell into a bucket for the seventh time. And then, Mike, Jack can't escape from the impression that's been left in his mind by this Bach piece, by the by O'Brien refers to it as the sonata, we would call it the partita. Mm-hmm. As he's writing to Sophie, he thinks that this was not music that he would have chosen to play when he was alone and low in his spirits. But he was not allowed to change or give up once he had fairly started on a piece. So when he played it at all, it was this partita that he worked on, playing in a non-committal way and attending chiefly to the technical aspects. And Jack muses to himself, at least I shall be word perfect when Stephen comes back and I shall ask him his opinion of it. And again, we're back in the territory of the music and that being a way of talking about the really close connection, the close friendship between Jack and Stephen. And we get this very strong signal here, Mike, that Jack's really missing Stephen. He's worried about him and the slightly dark, slightly obscure and crazy nature of the music is a token of that. Yeah, yeah. We've, you know, we've talked before about Jack on land, unmoored from the sea. Now we've got Jack kind of unmoored from Stephen here. And, you know, really, as you say, getting into a dark place, some of these ominous tones that O'Brien has going in the background here for us, uh, almost his, you know, soundtrack for the novel that we hear cranking up a little bit. And it continues a little bit. This, you know, he tells us that there's this monotony of the blockade. Jack's beginning to get a cold. There's a long, unseasonable spell of dismal weather. And this combines with Jack's loneliness and his isolation to really bring him down. He starts dwelling on these legal issues that are back home. And he starts thinking, too, about Hart being there on this blockade. You know, he knew that Hart was going to be there when he took the command, but he thought Admiral Thornton would be a far stronger man forcing Hart way into a back seat. Um, Jack actually even says to himself, had he known how likely it was that Hart might inherit the supreme command, he would have pressed hard for another ship. So we've, you know, we've kind of established last week, it, and we've known for some time in the canon that Hart has no love for Jack, that Hart now, you know, dislikes Babington, and now they are both here under the thumb of heart. I want to just dwell for a second on the metaphor of the cold as well, because it's a lovely highlight. It drips on and on this cold, just like a real cold. It's been with Jack for a while. It's going to be with him still. And we get the sense that we all know, I think, when you have a cold, you're miserable and the physical symptoms are with you a lot and you feel just downbeat and fed up and fatigued. And it's a really great context for all of this other stuff that's going on in Jack's character that he's got a cold. Mike, it reminds me, if you'll forgive me the digression, it reminds me of the Tom Hanks character in the movie Bridge of Spies, who is a, a solitary man trying to do a professional job, somewhat disliked and misunderstood by lots of the people around him, and he has a cold. Right. And it, Tom Hanks really plays it nicely, and it's written into the writing so well. It's such an everyday commonplace thing to have a cold. But when you've got a cold and everything else is mounting up against you, the world just feels like a more lonely place, and it really, really works. It's fascinating how O'Brien continues, as you say, to pull this cold throughout these next upcoming scenes. 
Yeah, yeah. So as a new ship joins the squadron, Jack goes out on deck to see who it is. And Killick, Killick the shrewish, you know, the, the Jewish mother Killick, chastens wow. him for being out in the weather, not dressed for it, him with his red nose. And I can almost imagine Killick sort of going to button up Jack's coat. Killick says the doctor would not have stood for this if he'd been there. And the new ship that we see on the horizon is the Niobe. And Mike, we, we made a passing reference to who might have been the bass players in the in the band of Jack Aubrey. And it's one of those characters. It's Awkward Davis. This old shipmate of Jack's, Awkward Davis, comes in, elbows past the lieutenant from the Niobe who's brought him over, and presumes, and this is vast presumption, presumes to step up and shake Jack's hand way outside of naval protocol as we know from Karen, way outside of social protocol. But Davis knows that he holds this kind of talismanic status over Jack because Jack saved Davis from drowning years ago. And there's this bizarre reverse obligation. Davis feels that Jack, having pulled Davis out of the drink in the past, Jack is now kind of obliged to look after Davis. And feels absolutely entitled to step in, to step into a role as a rated seaman aboard the Worcester, to step into a role as one of Jack's followers, and has no barriers, no compunction at all. It's a really funny scene. And it's really funny to see how Jack, especially in his exhausted cold bedraggled state really hasn't got the strength of character to resist this approach and jack feels obligated to provide for davis and it says here in the text he regretted it however davis was no seaman although he'd spent his whole life afloat dull-witted clumsy very strong and very dangerous when vexed or drunk easily vexed and easily intoxicated he either volunteered for jack's various ships or managed to get transferred to them so I, I get like this tone of reluctant consent when Jack says, well, Davis, I am happy to see you. And less than that, he could not say, the relationship being what it was. But in the faint hope of evading the gift, he was telling the Nibes lieutenant that the Worcester was so short of men that he could not possibly spare a single one in exchange. But when the, then the dryad repeated the signal, Worcester, captain repair aboard flag. And then, Mike, Davis sees his moment. Yeah. Davis, you know, immediately they're, they're lowering the barge down. Davis sees that, goes over and starts pushing one of the bargemen out of the way because Davis knows that, hey, he's going to be one of Jack's bargemen. Jack doesn't want to deal with it. He leaves it to bonding and poolings as he goes below to get ready to repair aboard the flagship here. As he comes up, he's kind of surprised because it seems like he didn't hear. He didn't see a big scene. Uh, maybe it all worked itself out, but no, O'Brien writes, as he sat in the barge wrapped in his boat cloak with a supply of warm, dry handkerchiefs in his lap and a ludicrous woolen comforter around his neck, he noticed that Davis was rowing number three, pulling with his usual very powerful, jerky, inaccurate stroke and wearing a look of surly triumph on his ill-natured and even sinister face. Whether he was staring straight at his captain, Jack could not decide, seeing that one of Davis's eyes had a wicked cast in it. Mm. <laughs> so it's it's great to have Awkward Davis around. Uh, it's great to have another one of the followers around. I get the sense that we're kind of steadily bigging Jack up and restoring his status and restoring his well-being from the low end that it's been at. But of all of the followers to ask to come aboard, I don't think Awkward Davis is the most welcome. 
Anyhow, Jack goes aboard the flag, and on board the flagship, the flag captain and the captain of the fleet lose no time in offering him drinks and cures and potions. The flag captain asks the steward to bring Jack his fear nought draft. So the flag captain says, quick, quick, the second glass or the first is mortal. So what's in this folk remedy that the flag captain's offered to Jack? We hear that it contains alcohol, Spanish fly, (laughs) and pepper. But actually, what somebody else recommends is raw onion. So Jack is getting all of these folk remedies pitched at him here. And while all this is going on and he's still wrestling with his cold, he's summoned to see Hart. And Mike, it starts off kind of promising because Hart tells Jack that there's a mission going for a reliable, discreet officer. And even Jack's friendly admirals are not famous for referring to him as discreet. But there's this sneeze from Jack and Hart asks him to sit further away, asks the clerk to open the window and gives his orders. Interestingly, it'll be important to note that Hart starts out giving his orders verbally and he directs Jack to take um, the dryad under his command and proceed to Palermo in Sicily to meet the armed transport Polyphemus. Now, the Polyphemus has aboard presents for the Pasha of Barca, one of these Byzantine rulers that we heard about last episode, and a new envoy, Mr. Consul Hamilton. And Hart's very careful to warn Jack to observe the benevolent neutrality of the Barbary states and to do nothing to offend the Pasha, whilst at the same time not yielding to any improper demands Um, nor sinking the dignity of this country in the least degree. And Jack is also asked to carry dispatches for the consul at Medina, which are going to be put aboard the Dryad. There are days sail, as we set out here, Mike, from Medina, and Captain Babington is to stand in, to to part company from the Worcester and the Polyphemus, to stand in and deliver them. So, rather suspiciously, Mike, Hart seems to want to really get Jack to pay scrupulous attention to these aspects of his orders. Right, right. This whole idea that says, you know, you're going to sail with Babington, but when you're a day away from Medina, Babington's supposed to go off by himself, not the two of you together. You go ahead, Aubrey, and go on. And you go on to this passion. We remember when Stephen was reading the Admiral's letter, one of them was from this new Pasha. And the Admiral was saying, well, wait a minute, actually, this new Pasha had requested the Admiral's help to sort of take over, but the Admiral knew he was secretly aligned with the French and really wanted his brother, who was the former Pasha, in charge there. Yeah. So, you know, it's yeah. interesting, these little undertones that are going up here. And, and we're wondering about Hart, like you said, in, you know, Jack knows, like many captains know, that it's really best to get Hart's orders in detail and in writing, because Hart is a slippery guy and he'll say anything later. Um, Hart doesn't want to comply with that, but Jack knows he's completely within his rights. It's one of the few things that a captain can override his commander on. He can insist on written orders. And Hart's sitting there with his clerk and his secretary present, so he's really got to comply. And Hart says, you know, I, I can't believe you know, there's this unnecessary delay, a waste of a fair breeze. You know, we have this urgent service, this, you know, this foolishness, this punctilio, this petty point of conduct or procedure. Nevertheless, Aubrey sticks with it. And Hart, you know, as, as the clerk is writing out the orders, Hart's looking at 
Aubrey and suggest that if Aubrey was bled maybe 12 or 14 ounces, it would help his cold. And then he says, it'll cure you for good and all. And then interestingly, O'Brien, yeah, he comes back and he says, the notion pleased him. Cure you for good and all. He repeated in a low inward voice. And I couldn't tell, you know, is, is this this heart pleased with himself with a turn of phrase, or is this perhaps something more worrying? Perhaps that this mission Hart had devised would, if you will, cure Jack for good and all, somehow make an end to him. Yeah. And I don't think we put anything past Hart at this stage. And if anything, my my, my antennae are even more alertly raised because right at the beginning, Hart says this is a job for a reliable, discreet officer. Right. So... Yeah. So what's going to happen? Uh, by the way, um, a, a quick check of our old favorite tool, Google Ngram, says that punctilio is an O'Brien classic. Peak usage of the word punctilio came in 1810. Nice. And then by the time we get to 1850, it's down to less than half of that level. So fantastic. Well done, Patrick O'Brien, for picking quality regency and early 19th century vocabulary. Anyway. Besides getting vocabulary lessons from Admiral Hart, Mike, we've got some questions in front of us now. How is Jack going to continue to cope with the cold? How is he going to resolve this anxiety and his low mood that he's got while he's separated from Stephen? And really critically, how is this mission to Medina and Barca with the transports and the dispatches and the consul and the presence? How's that going to work out? Is there a cure coming for Jack? And is it the cure that Hart has in mind? It's a great question. You know, and we, you know, we haven't even harkened back to Stephen's intelligence mission. He's been gone for a while. We don't know what's happened to him here. Uh, and what are the French? You know, the Admiral, two to three months, perhaps, Stephen thinks he has left in him. Uh, only cured if the French come out. Will they come out? I, I'm ready to start those holiday celebrations or continue them on, but... What do you say to picking up a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Well, as long as I can do it with a warm wish for a Merry Christmas and peaceful holidays and peaceful New Year to everybody, as long as I can get that in, I'll say, Mike, with all my heart. Ah, I, I join you. Happy holidays to all of you. That's a long old one. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we're going to be dropping your name for the next 17 episodes, so, so deal with it.